So we are just about to sit down with the man behind the myth. It's Phil Hay, isn't it? We're going to find out the real Phil Hay, the guy that's become the messiah, the forefront, the man at the forefront of Leeds United Communications. He's been doing it for 20 years, but it's exploded over the last few years with Leeds United success. And this is going to be an incredible chat about the reality of professional sport, how Phil sees it, and Phil's life himself, how he's turned to mindfulness and how he's turned to pay attention to mental health with mentality, with Andy's Man Club. And this is going to be some chat. Welcome to the Mentality Podcast. We're recording at the incredible Wheatwood Hall Hotel podcast studio. This is a podcast that goes way beyond stigma. We talk about men's mental health and mindset. We encourage the type of conversation that will open you up to another way to live life, another way to see yourself and the world around you. If you are ready for that, you're in the right place. I'm Stevie Ward and I'm an ex professional rugby league player and captain and now I guess I'm a bit of a podcaster, speaker, actor, writer, entrepreneur. I'm still working all that out but at Mentality we help men take control of their mindset by teaching them to find purpose, resilience and what I believe is the new success, inner peace. That sounds good. If you are that guy who is waking up to the fact that they need to do something different in life and the same old habits aren't working for you, it might be time to step up. If you want to start your journey with us, you can go to mentality.co.uk forward slash coaching to join the best team you have ever seen. Phil, thank you for joining us, mate, at the Mentality Podcast. You're welcome. Nice yes, to be here. it's been amazing. So we first spoke, Phil, back when I was floating around in Mexico, I believe, mm-hmm. back in uh, January, I think it was, and um, we did a bit of an interview. I think it was centering around concussion, wasn't it? And we sort of led in or bled into talking about Leeds identity and performance and what it means to play for Leeds and and how that translates to fans. Ever since that conversation, I've been so interested and I've just literally started doing a sports business masters at Leeds Beckett. So I'm like, I'm falling into all these thoughts and understanding what the relationship between the business, the fans, the actual team on the field. So I'm seeing sport through a different lens. I'm seeing Leeds through a different lens, mate. And for me, you are one of the people at the forefront of everything Leeds United, everything Leeds United and comes across into society whether we like it or not I've just seen a recent article about the the murals all over Leeds and it becomes it becomes us it becomes us and my favourite quote that Chris has ever ever done is he's got a few he's got a few Phil guilty Uh, Leeds United is supporting Leeds United is a great preparation for life I'd agree with that yeah um they can't get rid of me. That's the problem. I've been around for about 20 years now and uh, just part of the furniture and, and we'll get thrown out. But at some point, somebody <laughs> was asking me um, on The Athletic to describe Leeds United for, we've got a big American audience, obviously, for the website. Someone was asking me to describe the club. And I was saying, if you get to Ellen Road, it's rough and ready in a way that so many stadiums aren't these days. And in a way that 
I think it's unfortunate, really, that that kind of disappears over time and the commercial mm. and corporate reasons for that. But at the same time, I always look at Ellen Road and think one day this will be kind of glorious bowl, which people will love in its own way, but it won't be as it is now and they'll lose something because of that. But I was mm. saying I'm a bit like the West Stand, really. Bits dropping off me, um, been there for too long, badly needing replaced, <laughs> um, but still but still in, in the building, basically. The thing that interested me about you, um, aside from the story of your concussion, was, well, I guess it, it feeds into the story about the concussion, but was the perspective that it given you about how important professional sport actually is mm. and not so much to the people who follow it because clearly to the people who follow it it is really important although I, I sometimes wonder whether there are occasions where professional sport is almost a sort of like watching sport following sport is a substitute for happiness or substitute for I guess like compensation for, for problems that you're having in life and whether or not it mm. ever really yeah. fills the void or gives you what you need because of that but you were somebody who was a professional athlete, obviously, mm -hmm. played for your hometown club, played the sport you wanted to play. And it was really interesting when we got speaking, you saying that because of your injury and because of where it's left you and because of you trying to find new things to do in your life, yeah. trying to find another direction, it made you ask the question, was it all that really? Was yeah, it all that? Yeah, Did it yeah. give me enough? And actually the dream as it was sold in reality was it close enough? Yeah. Um, and I think you've said yourself a few times that when you look back now, it, it kind of wasn't. Mate, you know what? We're going to get into it some way, shape or form. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is what I love about podcasts. You, he's caught us in the back. He's counterpunched stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, I thought we were interviewing you and now it's like me going, right, this is what I think everything, but it's no, that, that was the conversation that we had. And as I said to you, like I've always watched sport and I've always watch the interviews after and I always left wanting more from it you know like just from the players just from the reality side of it and I guess when you're growing up you are sold the dream the reality of it the the illusion that you know I was watching an interview that Chris sent, uh, sent me yesterday and this was an interview with Chester Bennett and frontman of Linkin Park who died by suicide in 2017 but that you get a a green card delivered to you in the post that everything's going to be easy. Everything's going to be satisfied now. Yeah, you know, this is about being a celebrity, wasn't it? Yeah. You kind of had this illusion that when you make it, and it's a, it's a story as old as time, people who think that once they get to a certain level, everything mm. will be okay. Yeah. Sure, we've all had it in yeah. our own ways. Yeah. But then when you get there, you realise it doesn't change your internal world. No, really, it's it's hard. And, I, you know, you're mentioning about people latching on to professional sport almost, whether you're becoming a player or you are a player or you're a fan. I think it does, you know, it goes back to that quote, Chris, Leeds United, is, supporting Leeds United is the best preparation for life because... The play about male suicide as well, that quote is yeah. Well, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, It's about the, the weird aspect of football being this cathartic act in society, particularly for men, which, um, you know, it's, it's in the news a lot now and in the, the kind of public consciousness that men struggle to open up and talk. But I think football has been that outlet for so many people mm. for, for years. It's the only time I'd seen certain men in my life cry or show a lot of emotion yeah. with their... It's um, tangible, isn't it? And it's accepted and it's an arena where emotion is acceptable. Whether that's absolutely. flipping, hurling yeah. abuse at someone, you know, take that I, into the streets and it's not allowed, but... No, I mean, I, I don't know whether social media has changed that though slightly, whether it's less cathartic these days because people less and less just go to the games, go to the games read a bit about it and switch off. Everybody's mm. engaged in it mm. constantly. Mm. Um, and I do look at a lot of the, 
a lot of the conversations, arguments, debates, whatever else, particularly on Twitter, which is where I'm by far most active. I, I don't do much on Facebook at all. Um, we have videos on YouTube from my my podcast, and TikTok, the Athletic. TikTok, not at all. No, I consider myself <laughs> to be at least 10 years too old for TikTok and probably 22, 20 years too old for Snapchat or anything like that. But I, I would question whether... So the social media side of football is cathartic for people in the way that I think going to the games and the camaraderie of travelling away or going going to games at home or whatever else certainly seems to be. That's a really interesting perspective I haven't thought about actually that because you don't actually have the outlet of letting the stuff out you're, you're just behind a screen yeah kind of, there's a different there's a real difference between and, and a lot of it involves arguments yeah right a, lo- a lot of it um, seems to be clash of opinions clash of attitudes and not just purely in a sporting sense either. It, it kind of crosses over into clashes of cultural views, um, you know, social issues that get mixed up in, in football. And it's interesting, I mean, w- without sort of crossing over from mentality to, to something else specifically, I went to the Andy's Man Club um, meeting down in Castle for the, a few weeks back. And they, they seem to deal with it. A lot of people, it's essentially, it's people probably know it's men's mental health, it's um, suicide prevention. It's very yeah. similar sort of idea. And yeah, I've been to a session actually as a participant in a bad mm. part of my life. And yeah, it was one of the first ones in Halifax I went to. And mm. yeah, you've, you've spoken about it on the Phil Hay show as well. But yeah, just for anyone listening, is it? It's a great, great place yeah. if you, yeah, and just go. It is. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but, sorry. But it, the... what, what I was going to say was it seems to have reached out into, without I think specifically meaning to do this, it's reached out into the football demographic. And when you go to the meetings, you see a lot of people who you would expect to see next to you on the terraces or in the stands. Mm-hmm. I think it, it has reached out to that. But the football aspect of it isn't really present at all at the meetings. Everybody's there to support each other and everybody's there to talk about their issues and the problems of which we all have have some, some more, more than others. Um, and I think you can see in that the way that football and sport can be really positive and really healthy, that it kind of brings people together. I've just wondered more and more over the years whether social media leans in the opposite direction mm. and actually gives professional sport a bit of a, I guess, a bit of a negative effect, which is, in no way intentional on the part of the sport or the part yeah. of the, the sports people. But I just think it's that sort of environment where people seem inclined to fight as much as agree with each other. Uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we've talked about this quite a lot, Steve. And you know, the whole Arsenal fan TV kind of model of, um, I just wish, and I guess it's Twitter in general, but it thrives on negativity sometimes, some of that. And I used to notice that if Leeds had a bad result, I'd almost want to go on Twitter to feel worse sometimes. Mm. To vent. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. and to just and I'm not sure how healthy or good that is. Um, but it is such a big part of and look, there's a lot of humor and gallows humor, which actually is is quite good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The good side of it. But overall I'm just not sure if it's net positive or net negative. Um, but it's here now. Yeah. You, know, you know what I mean? It's well, it, it's it, not gonna go away. Uh, yeah, it's it, we need to use it for good or for worse. And I think as humans I don't know what the stat is. I think it's around 85%. You make decisions emotionally. And to have Twitter as a vehicle of a few sentences which you can type into your phone as quick as anything, it just creates that spiral. Can you imagine if if someone got a pen and paper out and thought, right, I'm going to write down what I think about this and I'm going to use a page and I'm going to use a two pages and I'm going to actually just get down what I think and work through it. They probably get to the end of it and go, oh, I probably don't need to. The process, the emotion that they're feeling, mm-hmm. whatever, wherever that emotion's coming from, it'd be cathartic and they'd be like, I don't need to add to the, but because it's 
technology and it's so quick. It's like I almost think, and this goes into society and me and Chris were speaking about it a bit earlier, that we have our echo chambers where we just hear people, the same discussion, the same views, the same opinions. And all the while this is happening, good and bad is created more and more. Everything's more polarized, yin and yang. It's like just, yeah. and then when we come out into the corridor of speaking to other people, it's, we're ready to shut things down and to defend and be right all the time. Yeah. And you can't get to any sort of central commonality because you're just trying to, the belief that you've got of someone being so bad and so awful is the thing that you're speaking to them about. And it's like, no, it's not about that. We've, we're missing the middle point here. We're just, we're just distracting from actually any discussion. And I think Twitter, obviously, with whatever characters it is, you can only just get a few insults in without actually understanding what you actually believe in together. Do you know? The I think that's true. And I mean, I need to be a bit careful here because obviously negative stories that come up, if we're talking about negativity, can be good to write about in a journalistic sense. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, yeah. periods where it was grim at Leeds under GFH and under Chileno were not mm. enjoyable to cover in terms of the team, in terms of the way they were playing or in any way making you think that this club are going on to big things. People always used to say it's an inevitability that eventually Leeds will be a Premier League club again. But there were various periods where you'd think to yourself, well, that's not necessarily true. And in order for them to do that, they're going to have to have far better structure and far better ownership than this. you know. And then you hit the BLC era and that turns into to what it became. Um, and that's almost like the payoff, particularly for the, the supporters, I think, for, for, what's, um, mm. for what's gone before. But the periods where it is negative and it's difficult and things are going wrong, journalistically, there's a lot to get into. There's a lot to write about and it does fill your pages or it, it fills your, your website. The thing I've always found about Twitter is that nobody ever speaks to you in real life in the way that they speak to no. you on Twitter. Mm. And that doesn't just apply to face-to-face -face conversations. It's the same with emails. You know, if people email you, even if it's to criticise something you've written or something you've done, it tends to be pretty constructive, you know, and, and you can get into usually pretty good conversations with them and, and chat things back and forward. Um, and for what it's worth, I, I actually think that when it comes to some of what you see on Twitter, in real life, the people who do that wouldn't actually have the motivation or the energy to do it if someone walked past them in the street, because what's the point? In, in those circumstances, you're in, as I see it anyway, you're suddenly in your actual day-to-day -day life, you know, mm. so you're doing your own thing, you're going to work, or you've got, you've got things that you need to sort out. Whereas I think on social media, it is that thing of devil makes work for idle thumbs. And I mean, mm. that's true of some of us journalists as well. It's not as if we're, we're not prone to, to causing mischief from time to time. And it's not as if every now and again, we don't kind of tweet at haste and then repent at leisure on the basis of what mm. you said, because you either haven't thought about it enough or you, in, you know, in hindsight, you're playing to the crowd a mm. little bit. But it's a, it's a strange world, which I think, to be fair, is not going away, is it? No. no. I was saying this to Steve earlier, and it's obviously not just because you're here, but I find you have a very rational, reasoned response to the whatever the noise is going on, I find. And yeah, I'm sure there are times you might think, oh, I could have done this, but everyone has that. You know, when you're doing it in the moment, it's never going to be exactly how you would if you had an hour to sit and think about mm. what's the perfect way to tweet this. But you have a very good knack of, yeah, not being caught up in the emotion of everything too quickly. And I guess let, let's jump back then because it might tie into how you think you became that way. But what led you to being in your role as uh, the man synonymous with Leeds United now? What's your kind of journey? Well, 
probably luck as much luck and circumstance as much as anything else. I grew up in Edinburgh until I was seventeen, a little town south of, of Edinburgh called Pennycook, and I went down to. Um, I'd, I'd always wanted to move to England to study, and I've no idea why, but it just seemed. If you think back to like the late nineties, and I'm making this sound as if it's like the nineteen fifties, but you know things are different now when it comes to people understanding the world and learning things about about the world. So you know if if you you know, good side of social media. If you follow people on the right people on Twitter or Instagram or wherever else, you can find out about anywhere. Mm. You know, in the way that people found out so much about Rosario in Argentina um, under Bielsa, it would have been far more difficult to do that back in the 90s because you didn't have your sort of instant access to, to people over there or um, newspapers, images, whatever else that were coming from there. So as sad as this sounds, England was quite an exciting place because it was... 250 miles away from home, 250 miles away from your parents. So you're moving out and you're doing what you do. So I came down to Sheffield and I studied journalism at the University of Sheffield. And I joined PA Sport after that, who were based in Leeds until, right in the centre of Leeds, until basically the week before I moved through to Leeds from Sheffield, at which point they went out to Howden. This, I was going to say weird village. It's actually a really nice village, but a really weird place for national news agency to be based, which is what Press Association is. So I was there for two and a half years and it was good and I did good things there. But the one thing that I could never get enough of was football writing and football reporting. And there weren't many avenues to do that there, despite kind of asking and pushing them a bit. So a job came up in 2004 at the Evening Post, which I went for and got on the sports desk. And then two years later, the chief football writer's job came up, which was essentially covering Leeds United day to day. Um, and the editor there, Phil Rostron, who do actually a sports editor who died sadly not so long ago. Great guy was Phil was was really good to me, and and he decided that he wanted me to do the job. And I think the reason why I've I guess become so associated with the club, aside from the fact that I've done it for so long, you know, it's almost twenty years now, is because there were a lot of years where because Leeds were floating in League One and more particularly in the Championship, you didn't have a huge number of journalists all over them. There was a lot more interest in writing about them when it was all going bonkers under Cellino. That's not a good use of word, but when it was when it was all out of control under Cellino, that was great to cover. But when it was just thoroughly dull and going nowhere and the team were finishing 15th and, and you know looking like challenging nobody, the interest waned. So you were kind of on the spot and there weren't that many of us doing it. You know, there were others like Adam Pope at Radio Leeds has covered Leeds for a yeah. long, long time. And likewise, he's been on the scene for, for ages, so is, is very well known. I think it's latterly, particularly with Bielsa and since promotion to the Premier League, that there is far more of a media presence. The difference with Bielsa was he was just interesting on a level that I've never seen before mm. in football. I know there are other people in football who are fascinating characters and that people are maybe you know broadly more interested in Ronaldo, Messi, that sort of thing, that kind of celebrity edge. But I think in terms of trying to understand somebody who not deliberately, but because of his persona and character made it quite difficult to understand him. You know, he would speak at length in press conferences so you get into his head in quite a big way. But he never did sit down interviews and you could never properly find out about the man behind the, the glasses, really. He was just utterly fascinating. And it was like a total, it was a total magnet, I think, for journalists from all over the world, not just mm. us. Some of the stuff we were talking about earlier as well, the reason Bielsa was so popular, I think, is because of the values he lived by were at odds with a lot of where football's going in so many yeah. ways. 
So you're, you've mentioned a lot of times that you're, you're a Hearts fan, they're, they're mm. your team. Did you have an England, when you were growing up, did you have a team in England that you followed or was it not on your radar at all much? Or Not massively. A friend of mine who I met on holiday in Scotland, he's from Daventry, he was a big Everton fan. So there was kind of interest there in the way that everybody up north was starting to take an interest in the Premier League. When I was 12, that launched and it wasn't as if none of us had much awareness of what was going on down south. But if I think prior to that, the only game I can ever remember watching live in England, aside from FA Cup finals, which was obviously every year, um, would have been the Liverpool-Arsenal game um, title decider in 1989, which was on ITV. It was an amazing game and an amazing finish. But there wasn't the... Scottish football was quite strong back then. Mm. You know, you had, you had some clubs here doing particularly well, especially Aberdeen, for as long as Alex Ferguson was, was manager there. So you didn't your interest didn't kind of gravitate towards English football in the way that it does now, and obviously the two countries in football in a sense have ju- just completely separated. You know, one's gone off the scale in terms of its rise. Scottish football, I wouldn't say is necessarily in decline, but is pretty stagnant, I think generally. And but once the Premier League started and it was televised so much on Sky and everything else, and once people started to have the money and the means to get Sky into your household, you started to pick clubs and started to pick teams. But I didn't really, in the sense of actively wanting to to follow another club, I've always been a Hearts fan. In the way that I've always been a club football man, you know, far more than, than international football, and that, again, is probably something to do with being Scottish. <laughs> um, but and I, I, I couldn't in any way pretend that when I came to cover Leeds, I was a Leeds United fan or had had any real affinity for the club. I was just Is aware that part of, them. of the job? Because I know like Adam Pope and Graham Smith both have other clubs. I wondered if it's to be as the best and not biased. I wonder if it's like baked in that they have to appoint a non-league I, I always thought it would be a good thing, although some people would disagree with that and I wouldn't say that they're wrong. I, I just think it's it, it probably does help you to be more objective about the club, not to be a, a supporter of them. Um, would you say you're a supporter now, though, after all the years you've had? Would you? No, because I think it would be a bit twee to say that. I, I, I like Leeds United a lot and it's good to see Leeds United do well. It was... I've probably never had a more satisfying experience in football than the promotion under Bielsa, I don't think, with the exception of the 2012 Scottish Cup final. But that's very niche, isn't it? People, mm. A lot of people across the world will know about what happened with Bielsa. Very few people will know about Hearts and Hibs 10 years ago. you know. But that is that all comes back to, to what you're interested in. So no, I think you, you're a supporter by blood, aren't you? And okay, some people get into clubs and develop interest in clubs later in life, and, and that's fine. Um, but it's it's kind of like affinity more than being a supporter or a fan. If so that I guess so. Say twenty years, maybe you're not working on Leeds, or will you always have a soft spot for them? They're they're your team. Oh yeah, the no, England and no, absolutely not. And also, it's it won't been, be like the day you you leave. You're like, oh, no, yeah, not yeah. no, not at all. I think there were periods where when they didn't seem to be going far on the base, and when it was all a mess under GFH and Chilino where you did think the the job satisfaction of this is sometimes quite hard to, to work out. I mean, on the one hand, you're getting paid to go and do it, so you can't complain about that ever. But you do need a bit of fulfilment in it, which is what came with Bielsa in the end. Um, so no, no, not at all. And I suppose bearing in mind that I've been doing this for almost 20 years, it's almost half of my life, yeah. you know. Mm. So I think it would be pretty sad to go from it thinking... Do you celebrate I'm the absolute- goals? That's probably a good indicator yeah. of where you're... 
there have probably been two. The Beckford goal against Bristol Rovers. Oh, I was there, yeah. um, What a moment. And there was a Huddersfield <laughs> fan. I was at the Evening Post at the time. There's a Huddersfield fan in the office who never forgave me and Richard Sutcliffe, who is a Leeds fan, but was for the what for the Yorkshire Post, is now at the Athletic with me, um, never forgave us for that, you know, for yeah. celebrating that goal. But the, the, And the other one was the Hernandez goal at Swansea, which I wasn't out of my seat for, but, you know, you were sitting there thinking, because you knew that that was it. There was still the scope for Leeds to do what Leeds had done before. Yeah, and didn't make feel a mess like of it, but you subconsciously mm. knew that surely we're over the line. But with Leeds, yeah. you always have that like, yeah, it can fuck up. There's that thing, thing yeah. in the back of your mind yeah. going, "Oh, we can't fully go on for this because there's that. even the Rhinos, right? You're yeah. the most successful team in that era. Yeah. When it went wrong for you guys, you, you did it. You went it's, all wrong. Yeah, yeah no, it's like, oh, there's still possibility to be the worst team next year. So yeah. we'll make sure we don't, you know, get too carried away. It's like in the DNA, <laughs> isn't it? Maybe that's, maybe that's the working class sort of thing. You know, I don't know. I don't know what that is, but it's, um, it's distinctly Leeds. Steve and I were out for a coffee about three weeks ago, and we were talking about this and. He was asking me what what is it about Leeds that makes them Leeds, and I was saying that I've never been able to answer that, and I don't mm. think I will be able to answer that except to say that there's nowhere else quite like it. And when you're in Leeds, you know you're in Leeds, and when you're at Ellen Road, you know you're at Ellen Road, and it couldn't be anywhere else really yeah. if that makes that makes sense. It, they just we don't have the language really, it, even though it, we're both writers. I think there's something yeah, yeah. there's intangible just, you can't. It just is of itself, yeah. if that makes it, sense. It, it could be like the Coliseum kind of Ellen Road at some point, you know, like if it, yeah. if it's not built up, you know, you could have that and people go back and go, you should have seen this. Like the Chelsea game, if you could see the scenes yeah. or be a part, everyone will be like, want to be a part of that. Like you mentioned before, the, the, the raw nature of going to a Leeds game and celebrating it and, and seeing the players work hard on the field, just like letting themselves do it and just complete all-out sacrifice, basically. When they have that nature of flicking off that back in, in, in the back of the head, which is, I guess, what I relate to when I played, and we used to put the tactics in place where it would be all-out, you'd, you'd let go of that voice in the back of your head, which is is almost hesitant, you know? And I, that's what I got from watching, especially the, the win against Chelsea. Mm. It's that you can see, you can see it, you can see it in the body language of the players, you can see it in how the fans react. And it's like... Those moments are unreal. And what does that feel like then from a player's perspective? Like, are there games you can draw upon where you're like, you feel like you're spent, but from the energy from the crowd, there's something like awoke within you're like, right. It's quite a spiritual thing, I guess. Before I even was into spirituality or anything years and years ago, you know, you can go and meditate on top of a mountain for a week or whatever. And I imagine it'd be something similar in terms of, sharing the same emotion and the same desire and drive and that ability to let yourself go into it you know it is almost of a, a surrender in, in a type of way you know like quite a deep way it's a surrendering to just fully exposing yourself to whatever's going to be because you know you're going to do 100 percent of what you need to do out there and then i've played in games where you are you, you know you feel your teammates are the hesitancy in there it might be five percent but it takes you out of that zone and it takes fans out of that zone. And it's like, you know, those last moments where you can t you can almost tell as you're doing it that, I don't know if it's momentum, I don't know if it's... Yeah, maybe you said, I, I find it really interesting. Stevie would say certain games where, to the naked eye, it's like 12 all. But he'd be saying, we knew we had them. And he was just always knew. right. Like, just knew, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or just... you'd be watching games with me and it's like, oh, they've you can there's something subtle in body yeah. language or... It's all, it's all about your understanding, isn't it? I always remember a season where Brentford won League One, I think, or went up from League One. And 
they were, and this sounds totally unconnected, but it kind of isn't. They were miles behind Leighton Orient at one point, and their owner, Matthew Benham, is big on, made his money from professional yeah, gambling. The Moneyball kind of model, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's huge on data and stats and everything else. And he looked at the stats and he basically said to Brentford's squad, they're not playing anywhere near as well as they should be to be 10 points clear of you or whatever else. You're mm. actually playing the better football. Your stats are better. Over the course of the season, you will do better than them and you'll get promoted ahead of them, which is exactly how it worked out. And it is that sort of thing where you do have situations, I can imagine, where the game feels really tight or feels really tense. And sometimes it's really difficult, even in the press box, to have the perspective of how it feels for the players on the pitch, mm. you know, whether they feel the same tension. I mean, mm. the, talking about finding the extra percentage, that Hernandez goal at Swansea, obviously it's the timing of the goal which is the, the big thing, you know, it, that makes it feel pivotal. But when you look at it, from start to finish, it's a full length of the pitch move. Yeah. So it's still yeah. finding that. And that was the big one of the big things on the Bills. It was the fitness levels that they had were genuinely off the scale. You know, it wasn't um it wasn't a myth and it wasn't that wasn't said or, or promoted to, to massage anybody's ego. It was absolutely true. Mm. But you're able to do that in the most critical moments. And I think that's why like the the Beckford goal came at the point where Leeds have been one nil down. 10 players, last day of the season in League One. And you're thinking to yourself, they're never going to get out of this league, yeah. are they? They're going to be stuck here forever. That was the most depressing half-time ever, wasn't it? Was it was awful. Yeah. And again, made worse by the fact that, I always say this, when the pressure comes to bear, it seems to bear worse on Leeds than most other places. It get, And that's why in the Championship it's tough, because it is more intense and there is more frustration when it all goes wrong. And likewise, the Hernandez goal, you kind of knew it when that went in, you just thought, They've, they've basically got this. And that wasn't about one season. It wasn't even about two seasons under Bielsa. That was this massive climb from 2003, 2004 onwards that again, there were mm. periods in it that just looked like it would it would never happen. Mm. It's crazy because, it, it, you know, we can talk about that disparity or that difference, Phil, for, you know, from your perspective about the fans' perspective of what's going on, the professional lifestyle, the, the lifestyle of being a professional footballer or athlete and then for what you see and you know what your collection is of thoughts opinions mm. and perspectives that you've gained from the professional world but it is it, I think there's something I guess it's why people went to a gospel church in New York people just want to be unified people want that feeling of being unified and and that's why I think you can get it from Andy's man club because mm. everyone's going through that fear to, mm. to speak about something that they're so scared about it but once they see each man come out and speak the truth, they feel like they can be part of it and, and add and be part of the, the collective truth. You know, and I think that's the same as winning a grand final yeah. or seeing Leeds get promoted. Everyone's been through these shit moments. And I think people just want to be part of something remarkable. Yeah, Do you know, I think so. we've got, you know, we're going deep, but we've got, we've only got so much time on this planet. And it's like, people just want, they just need that. And we've done workshops, we've done all sorts of stuff and we do corporate wellbeing. And I think it's just, I think it's allowing people to dip into that, that feeling that, that you can get that's that's available and that's available through, through all sorts of things. It's just, it takes that discipline, it takes that dedication to it to sort of break through and to be able to allow those moments, you know, allow those periods of, of your life. See, I think one of the things that doing this job has taught me about individual sportsmen, and again, Steve, you'll probably relate to this, is that it's very easy from the outside to to have tunnel vision about what's good for them. 
So mm. money, mm. obviously. And once you get into football and claim to any level, people know without having the faintest idea about exactly what your salary is, that you're very well off and you're very wealthy. I mean, it's it it's not a secret as to why you see a lot of burglaries at footballers' houses because yeah. the people doing it, even without even scouting it out, will know that there will be a lot of stuff in there that's worth a lot of money. So to use that as an example, these days quite a lot of footballers need private security at home. They are at risk of, of that sort of thing. But the money looks great, doesn't it? From the outside, mm. money looks fantastic. So does the adulation that you get when things go really well. But the huge parts of your career where, even if it's not going badly wrong, you're not actually amounting to too much or you're not achieving too much. You know, you're not winning trophies. You're not doing things that are going to be particularly remembered. And that's nobody's fault. I mean, as Brian McDermott used to say to me when he was at Leeds, there are only three clubs who can get promoted from the championship every season. You know, everybody goes into the season of most clubs thinking we'd like to get out of this league. But 21 are going to be disappointed at the end of it. And that's mm. that's kind of how it goes. And I've started to understand more and more. And, you know, speaking to guys like Stevie helps with this, but more and more the mental pressure that they're under, the the physical stress that they're yeah. under as well. I mean, Jesse Marsh at Leeds has tried, I think, since he came in as head coach, has tried to speak to the players more and more about what do you have outside of the game? You know, what what does mm. your life look, say, look like outside of the game? What do you do? What are your interests? How do you get away from business? You know, how do you stop it becoming all business? Um, and it can be massively all-consuming. And it's not in any way to say that it's not a really privileged career or it's not a great career in the same way as mine is. You know, we don't get paid, you know, what, what professional footballers do. But we're all, you know, in a position like this, you're pretty comfortable and, you, and you, you're dead lucky in that respect. But none of it ever means that it's not without pressure um, mm. or that it's not without things that don't make you happy. And I think it's easy to look at... I can only really speak about footballers, yeah. but I think it's very easy to look at footballers and think they must be the happiest people going because look at what they've got mm. but, they're, but they're human like everybody yeah. else yeah and that's another kind of fallacy so many people buy into but we mentioned Chester Bennington you could talk about Robin Williams Gary mm. Speed there's a list that goes on 10,000 as long as humans been around of people mm. who everyone externally think oh they've got everything made for them but internally they don't so yeah and obviously a lot of these people are young boys when they start getting kind of notoriety now look at Archie Gray and absolutely um is it 15 going 16 or 16? Well, he's so now, young. He? We did a piece on him about three weeks ago and we held off for a while because he was so young and, and I know his, his family pretty well and you want to be you want to be sensible with it. You don't yeah. want to just yeah. pile in right yeah, yeah. this, this kid. But obviously, he's now very much first-team squad player without being regular first-team player. His debut's not going to be far away, all things going well. And he is exceptionally talented. Somebody is asking me, you know, who could be the next player that leads to hit 500 appearances? And you're saying, well... If everything's equal, it could well be him. Mm. You know, I mean, he could as easily end up going somewhere, somewhere else for for big money if he is that good. But he looks that good. But I mean, mm. he was so young at fifteen that when he was going away with Leeds, he needed his own dressing room. He was offered a chaperone for pre-season tour in Australia, and he's he's like five years older than my eldest, who's just started secondary school. And I can't imagine having that to deal with as a parent. But it also makes you realise that when he, you know, if his career goes to plan, when he gets to the age of 35, when he gets to the point of retirement, if he, you know, injuries stay clear and everything else, he'll be thinking to himself, I have done this for longer than I can remember. You know, mm. it'll be absolutely all that he knows. And so on that basis, mm. you hope that it's good, good to him, you know, and I don't just mean financially, you hope that it's mentally good to him as well. Mm. You'd actually be quite a good person to speak to, stay on that, because... 
you were the youngest ever Challenge Cup finalist, I think, right? And the youngest mm-hmm. ever Super League Grand finalist. Finals. Grand finalist, yeah. And um, I think you've told me before, it was like two weeks before you did your GCSEs or something. And yeah. you're on Sky Sports News and then going into school. What would your advice to Archie Gravy then if you were sitting down with his parents or him or saying, how do you kind of, how do you keep grounded and, and not let stuff like that go to your head and take you down the wrong path? Yeah, I mean, flipping a guy, I'd, I had a lot of effort to try and stay grounded, whatever the hell that meant at that time. You know, I th- I, at that time, I thought it was just shrugging off compliments and not letting people's compliments get to your head. You know, staying level-headed, what does that just, what does that mean to a young lad? Do you know what I mean? Like, so you've got to have the people around you that are saying, carry on with your education, you know, keep your interest in this. And I had a teacher who, who was amazing and it, it's, it's actually... Um, it rings so true to me now in, in, in my life and everything about for, for me as a young lad was about playing rugby and being the next captain, you know, being the next Kevin Sin. Everything was like zoned in on that from 12 years old, really. Mm. So I had I had that experience of, of growing up having some sort of physical representation in school, but always my head being... I'd, I'd be imagining playing rugby all the time. Do you know, I'd be rehearsing tries that I'd scored at the weekend and I'd be thinking about new tries to score following weekend in history or what, whatever we were studying. So you're already on that that track, I guess. Did you want to leave school at 16? Was yeah. Ever, and- I, I was like ready to get into it. I was like 16, I could go, I was signing at 16 so I could go and play full time. I could go and train full time. But I had conversations which I'm lucky to have had with Kevin Sinfield, Barry McDermott at that time, people around me, which enabled me to keep in that system a little mm. bit and further my learning, further my thinking, which is so important. I even think sometimes now I wish I'd have done a university course when I'd left to engage more in critical thinking as well, you know, like which I think critical thinking is important for us when we're speaking on Twitter and, and speaking rationally on Twitter and having reason. But also, I think it's good for your mental health to think, mm. Put you know, in perspective, it yeah. puts things in perspective and stops you getting carried away, which I think is is very easy to do. But I, I did my A-levels and then a week after I was playing in a Challenge Cup final at Wembley. So I was like, I was off. You know, after that point, I was off. I was fully into the game then. I had done my A-level results and I was that was that. Do you remember the moment where you realised there's no going back now? I'm famous, you know, were you getting recognised? Is there like an overnight kind of... I guess it... Because Archie's past that line now, right? Like I'm sure I, he I can't just walk around well, the city centre. Whether... I mean, you love rugby league. Mm. To the extent that I can't imagine you ever having thought to yourself, I wish I wasn't doing this. But there must be athletes out there who are so good at what they do that they can't do anything else. Mm. But actually, if you find, despite how talented you are or, how, or what it's given you, that it's not making you happy. Yeah. It's not what you want. It's kind of no way out, is there? Yeah. Like it's it's kind of like your path is is built for you and that's what you're going to follow until the point at which it all ends. Yeah, I mean it's it's structured for you, you know, mm. you've got the you've got the whole path laid out here and you know a lot a lot of it when you're young is you play it, you know, you play rugby league, you play football. And that's what it is, it's play, it's a game. Yeah. But then all the stuff gets added on top of it. It's like expectations, pressure, standards of fitness, you know, science of GPS, and it, and, it, and it adds layers on top of it. And underneath it, there's still that play, and that's, you know, it's relative to the feeling that you get when you're 
you let everything go and you're just fully into the game and you're making those decisions. But it, it does change and it does affect you. The pressure does affect you. And I had so many injuries. It got to a point where I was like, well, what am I here? I got injured that many times. I'm like, I can't play here. I can't go and do that. So what am I anymore? And, and you know, going back to that teacher, I did English in, in my A-levels, literature and language. And I'm glad I have because it means I can somehow have a conversation with you guys. But I remember, the, I say it's my first ever public speaking engagement. I told the school, I told the English teacher about the 2011 playoffs for Leeds Rhinos. We won it from fifth. And the, the motivation behind that playoff surge was Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, which was like, you know, I'm, how old were I, 17 then? And I read it out in front of the school. And it's funny when I look back now because the meaning of that poem as I've got older has transformed and changed. Originally, it was just about, you know, one of the lines is keep your head when everyone else about you is losing theirs, you know, so that's keeping you cool on the field. That's keeping, not listening to the critics and just knowing yourself and, and being confident. So at that point, 2011, yeah, brilliant. We're going, we're winning the playoffs. We've managed to do it when everyone says we couldn't do it. But now I look back at it and I'm like, there's so much more depth to that poem where you've you've literally got to manoeuvre past the game. It's not just the, the game, it's not just the playoffs. It's when you leave the game, it's when you're two weeks after winning a grand final and you're like... It's life. What, yeah, it's yeah, life. It's life, yeah. It's yeah. life. It's the nation's yeah. favourite poem, I think, and obviously for a reason. Is it? Yeah, and I think obviously, Mike Bassett's England manager, it was, a, it was in that. <laughs> that well. was it. Might have brought it yeah. back into the, the consciousness. Yeah. With, um, so it's like, it's having that pursuing other interests basically, you know, and, and from that teacher, I, I was able to pursue that side of it, which has carried on, even though I've not been able to carry on on the field. I do think though that everybody is starting to wake up to the idea of having as much as you can in your life. It's helping that people like Stevie in, in lots of sports are willing to speak about mental health. When we were chatting about this and I was telling you about Andy's Mind Club, um, the meeting I've been to, I was saying it, it almost starts to feel like it would be weird not to speak about this stuff rather than it being... Like, it's not that it's easy to speak about. It's never easy to speak about. And that, I mean, the, the thing that jumped out for me when I went to that meeting was there was a guy called Ricky Fisher who opened it. And he was aware that every week you could have new people coming who'd never been before. So naturally, really nervous and apprehensive and not quite sure what was going to go on. And everyone you spoke to basically told the same story, which was that tried to go basically didn't want to go until we got there and then realised yeah. we should have gone a long time ago, which is kind of natural human reaction. But Ricky won't mind me telling this story because it's in the article that I wrote and, and we spoke about it on our podcast, but he was sexually abused as a child and he'd been in a relationship where he'd confided with his partner. She was the only person who knew all about this. And then they'd split up, you know, so his kind of support mechanism was, was gone. And he always tells this story at the start of the meeting. You know, he says, you know, I'm Ricky and this is why this is why I'm here. This is what happened to me. And it has this great effect. It's a big responsibility that I think week after week, but it has this great effect of everybody in the room being able to empathise and to relate and to sit there thinking, actually, if I've got a minor problem, then it's fine. But if I've got a serious problem, then there are people mm -hmm. in here who will not necessarily be able to relate to the specifics of it, but will totally be able to relate to having an extremely difficult time and, and having a lot on your mind and, and having problems that you're, you're trying to deal with. And th there's been a massive shift, I think, particularly among men, 
which yeah. is which is let's be honest you know problematic group when it comes to being particularly open about stuff and i'm i'm not really any different to anybody else in that sense but there's been a big shift i think in a in a positive way it's gone nowhere near far enough but i mean the, the stat that you always get told is that if you're between 80 18 and 50 and you're a man then there's nothing more mm. likely to kill you than suicide. And after that meeting, I was sat at the League Cup game against Barnsley and I was in the process of writing about it and I was looking at people sat round about me and thinking, all the blokes here between 18 and 50, there's nothing more likely to kill them I than that. Yeah, if, you had, if you were given £100 pounds and you had to bet on every single one of them, yeah. how your best bet is to bet that they'd all... Take them yeah. out. That's crazy, that, it's, right? It's absolutely awful. And I think... Yeah, that stat is like on repeat, you yeah. know, it's on repeat and you hear it constantly. But until recently, and I still don't think enough's being done, but until recently, it doesn't feel as if enough people have properly engaged in trying to combat that. But things like mentality and things like AMC make a big, big difference, I think. And you've Easy spoken about it quite a few times now and in The Athletic and, you know, you're a part of the the walk that recently happened mm -hmm. to raise money for Andy's Man Club. Made and, it home alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are the blisters gone? And yeah. I've, I've got a, a, the um, second toe of my right foot is broken and I think is broken forever because it's not, I don't think it's really possible to reset it or, you know, if you're not a sportsman or something, there is very little point. It's not painful, um, but it's a bone Just mangled. It. Yeah, it's just right-hand side, um, which is not a surprise because it was like 27 miles on the first two days and none of us were ready for it at all. Not properly, you know, yeah. the people there who do walking and everything else, but it was quite an experience. But it was, at the same time, it was um, it was brilliant. Yeah, it was great. Well, having done the West Island Way recently and Steve was laughing at my daily updates. <laughs> I don't think people realise that like, walking is really hard when yeah, you do it for so a long period. You just imagine you keep going, don't yeah. you? And you do, but not in, not in the sense of oh, yeah. getting it eventually. There's a lot more pain to accompany yeah. with that keep going, isn't there? Yeah, Massively. I'm getting PTSD. Um, <laughs> so it's obviously something that you've started to think about more and more and I take it you've led that the athletic haven't come to you and go oh can you this is it's something that you've kind of noticed no, but you know no. what I, I can talk about this a bit with my platform and it overlaps yeah. quite a lot with football and I was I was interested in Stevie because obviously the story of retiring early and because he was a Leeds fan and there was a Leeds United connection there and everything else um and there's an editor of my work, Craig Chisnell, who is a big rugby league fan as well, who said, you know, that could be quite interesting. And actually, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but from a football perspective, it was, I think as the, the final article, it was a hundred times more interesting than I thought it was going to be. I mm. thought it would be really good, but in the end, there was just loads to it. And oh, loads that, that the athletic article between the, the, the two of them, the interview that I did. Yeah, that was Stevie. really good. And yeah. there was a bit, because we talked for ages about this and it came up in the article was, again, we're jumping around a little bit, but... And sorry to jump in for no, as well, but there was a bit about the overlap. I remember speaking to Steve about Bielsa's system and he would tell me about this, is it the sliding defence that you used? Yeah. yeah. And I remember having a coffee once and going, you know, I got slated for missing a tackle or something, but I didn't because I was doing, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I yeah. had to follow this. Yeah. And if you start breaking the system, yeah. but then to the naked eye, the fan might look like you're doing it. And when it goes wrong, it all goes wrong. Goes and like, shit, the BL yeah. system's kind of the same. Like yeah. you could be following your man and someone could be kind of, looks like they're glad you're letting them go, but you're actually sticking to the system. Mm. And they're both kind of unique and systems. And also knackered because it's asking so much more yeah. of you physically. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, week it's in, demanding week out. it from you. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. So that was, there were loads of, I thought, there was loads of correlation between football yeah. and rugby league, but also just when it comes to athletes in general and sportsmen, um, I thought a lot in it that, you know, footballers would relate to, definitely. Mm. But I have been 
I have got more interest in, in men's mental health. I mean, I, I felt a little bit like a rubbernecker when I went down to AMC and I did join in with the meetings. They were great fun, actually. Actually, great fun. They were great. To do. Yeah, and yeah. it was a really good atmosphere and everything else. But it was hard not to sit there and think, I don't have problems in the way that a lot of these people do and mm. I can't pretend that anything I'm dealing with is on the same level. Although they were really good at saying to you, it's kind of no problem too small, you know. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Once you start thinking like that, that's that's when almost a problem in itself. It, you know, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, um, that's not great. Um, but I've I've started doing mindfulness recently. It was recommended to me by a guy called Gary Devonport, who used to run a separately genetic podcast, Talking Short. Oh, really you've been on it, Steve. Yeah, he's yeah. he's interacted with yes, us a few times. Yes. Really good guy. Yeah. So Ga Gary was in the forces and served abroad um, in Afghanistan at least once, but I think twice. And is now in the fire service. And, you know, neither of those those jobs are, are a joke at all. So he does mindfulness and he, he, he's spoken before about mental health issues that he has and he put me onto this. And the one thing I'm really bad at is switching off from mm. work, which for me kind of manifests itself in constantly fiddling with your phone and constantly worrying about stories that might be breaking, what might be going on that you're missing, what you haven't mm. done, what you should have written about. If other people, have written, other people have written pieces that you think, I should have done that and I should have had that idea and I didn't. Transfer stories that you'd think, I would have liked to have had that, but somebody else has run it. Um, mm. And, and you, obviously, and these days... And Rodrigo de Paul on that front. Or, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> yeah, still in Dan Moylan's basement, I think, <laughs> trying, to, trying to break out. Um, and it's... I think... I think there's a, a period in your life, particularly I think 20s and 30s, where certainly in, in my job, where you feel like you're constantly trying to establish yourself and constantly trying to push yourself further and be ambitious and this, that and the other. And then you hit a period in your life where you feel like you should try and enjoy it more, I think, mm. or you should try and you should try and not, not worry about... But I'd always say to my kids, and it's a bit um, hypocritical this, because to a large extent whatever you do, whether it's playing rugby league, football, any job you do, you have to be conscientious and you have to push yourself and you do have to take things seriously and some things will cause you worry and anxiety and, and some things should. But I would always say to my kids, the one thing I've learned is not to worry so much about just general stuff. And mindfulness is really good for that. And the one thing I wanted to try and do was be much more present with my two girls. So when I'm a wife as well, who gets the, you know the same thing of me sitting fiddling on on my phone, and it's that thing of you sitting playing a board game or something like that, and you realise that you're, sitting you're not really on there. Twitter. You yeah. get the phone out and you're clicking on Twitter. And I think while I, I haven't stopped doing that because it's not as if you click your fingers and it's an overnight thing. I think what mindfulness has made me realise is that I am doing it. So rather than just sitting there doing it without thinking, yeah. you find yourself... That's the in, first step. Yeah, 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 you find yourself in your head thinking, you shouldn't be doing this. And actually, there's nothing on there you need to know about. And even if there is, you're on a day off. So, you know... You know, that's so... so powerful. Wow. I did... A, I've done silent retreats. I did an eight-week meditation retreat. And I'll never forget, I was uh, in my 20s at this point, and um, there was loads of parents in there. And all of them said the same thing when we went around and go, why are you here? And they said, because I realised my child's now 10 or my child's 12. I said, I've never really been there. Mm -hmm. I said, my child came home from work and they've drawn a picture from school. And I put it on the fridge and I'd be worrying about dinner or applying to an email. And yeah. I, I never stopped and mm -hmm. looked at it and was there. And it always stuck with me that. And I thought, 
life now more and more encourages us to not be there because there's so much stuff. Yeah. We've got these devices. It's super smart trying to grab our attention all the time. Mm. And we did a podcast with Anastasia from Consciously Digital. Yeah. And it's all about the habits you can build as families about when phone stops. I know your job's particularly hard, but I'm sure maybe there's a time you can say at 8 p.m. I can I can just turn the Wi-Fi off. Or It's it, one of those where you always have to accept that certain things are going to happen. And if they do, then you need to you need to deal with them because mm. that's kind of your job and players sign at all hours managers get sacked at all hours things happen you know clubs yeah, get yeah. taken over just whenever it happens to go through so you sort of have to accept in this job that you'd either go with that or you don't do it you know you, you kind of do something else but I think there is actually more time where you can switch off than you realise and probably more than, yeah. than you lay yourself and the, the thing I have to think about as well is that less so in the Premier League but in the Championship I was away all the time you know weekends basically every weekend with the exception of a few international breaks and two months through the summer you were travelling somewhere so you'd be away on Saturdays you'd be away on Sundays you'd sometimes be away midweek and I'm like a lot of people I hate the idea of the kids getting to you know 18, 21, whatever else, and saying, you were never really around when we were young. Mm. You know, you were kind of there, but you were always typing, you were always away at the football, this, that, mm. and the other. And they're not like that. Um, but part of the issue is that neither of them has the slightest interest in football, apart from our youngest naming the tortoise after Bielsa, because she thought he was, <laughs> she thought Bielsa was like this mythical beast, you yeah, know, this yeah. mythical guy, the way we spoke about him, it made him sound like this kind of ma magician. So she was kind of five or six at the time when, when he first came into Leeds, um, a little bit younger. And so she got, you know, she got really fixated on this, but neither of them has ever been to Leeds game. And to be quite honest, I don't know if you- That's quite refreshing for you yeah. probably, right? So it can, is, yeah. Well, he's not a bothered yeah, either. So yeah, yeah there's very, very little football so, chat in the house. I guess your challenge then is to, yeah, that's your job and you love it and it's good. It's bringing all these benefits. And we talk about when you loved your job, it has these benefits, but mm. it's how you build the mindfulness framework that fits around that then. So find mm. your moments and be present when you are playing the ball games. And yeah. when things come up, you do react to them, do it in the moment, and then you can leave it and come back. And Well, that, that, that's the issue. You so, you know, you're actually noticing, noticing yourself go on to Twitter, mm. right? But there's a large amount of the population that don't they don't really notice yeah, it, yeah. and I don't think they it's notice. Yeah. They don't notice that response that they, they put into someone or to a player, or they don't they don't mindfully think about it, you know. And before they know it, done it, and they're not really noticing those impulses to go on the phone. And like you say, I, I I'm like almost oh Mike, I'll pull Instagram up, and then I'm like, there's a split second, I'm like. Why am I on here? What yeah. am I doing on here? If I didn't have that, flipping it, you just you, you're literally a hostage to whatever comes up onto your newsfeed, and there's less control. But I think within all that, when you talk about Bielsa, and that was a man who came in that seemed to be, well, to me, to, to my eyes, to be sort of away from everything like that. You know, it it was mm. almost like a like you say a mythical figure, but he he had actual values that that he held himself to, and it could. Honesty being yeah. first and foremost, as we've talked about loads in the podcast. Yeah. I think he was classically Leeds United in a way that he would never have realised until he came here. Although I think when he first analysed the job as it was presented to him, I think he started to realise that there were things about Leeds that reminded him of Newells and Rosario and, yeah. and everything else. But he was kind of made for the club. His character, his personality was made for the club. Um, and I often wondered how, how he would have been received, how he would have gone elsewhere, because I think... Leeds were particularly ready for him. I think they were. But 
I I looked at him during the final season and I I just saw somebody who was under huge pressure. I don't mean huge pressure from the club or the fans, but huge professional pressure. He put a lot on himself. It clearly had a big effect on him when things went badly wrong. I mean, he he never gave you the impression when things went spectacularly well that he was dancing around the office. (laughs) This kind of consistent tone about him and and manner about him. But you could see that it was hard to take in that last season. And and again, I've never really understood why anybody goes into management and I know the upsides of it when it goes well are great and you're involved in football and everything else but the stress and the intensity of it is I think at the top level now seems to me to be almost unmanageable for an individual Mm. person clearly people can cope with it but Mm. 100% wouldn't be for me ever no matter how much I understood about tactics or the game or anything else I just would not want that I think the same about when you see politicians and things like that Mm -hmm. even if you were had the apps like skills for the job it's the last job in the world i yeah. think i'd want yeah and i'd be able to deal with i couldn't go to sleep at night thinking you know a russia gonna nuke us and also, nobody asks you for your autograph yeah. you're a politician yeah, yeah. upside of um upside of football and, and rugby league and other sports but yeah. i mean among, among other things i've started doing the rubik's cube and, and in part because i've got a nephew in australia who can do it in 30 seconds flat um he's wow. only 11 blessing but he has one of these speed cubes so he, he you you mix it up for him, you give it to him. He looks at it for about four seconds and then he just absolutely destroys it. So he sent me the challenge of having a race with him on Christmas Day and I, I will get five minutes, he'll get but well, he says he wants a minute, but really, you know, he should get um he should get about thirty seconds. So to there's do a it. handicap on you've got uh yeah Yeah, but again There's a tense four minutes well, until well, he comes in. I, I, I can't see me winning that. But you never know if I if I apply myself properly then then I should do. But Again, your mind just focuses in on it. It's so complex and it's so detailed that it's all you can think about, you know, so it's mm. a good way yeah, of just yeah. switching off. A bit like reading, but when you read, sometimes your mind can drift, you know, and that's mm. one of the things that the mindfulness sessions I've been doing have kind of taught you about is noticing when you're reading a book but you're thinking about the fact you should yeah. be at Aldi, yeah. you know, like, and, and how to <laughs> yeah. catch your mind and, and bring it back. So, yeah, Rubik's Cube, again, it's it's incredibly difficult, but that, um, so a it, challenge. It, Presence is a muscle. I really believe that. Like uh, I had a bad head injury and I was never present. And I meditate a lot now. I try and do it every morning. And it might not feel like you're meditating. You're meditating sometimes. You might just be daydreaming the whole time and just notice two, three times in 10 minutes or 20 minutes. But the more I do it, the more I noticed when I'm with friends, I am actually with them. Yeah. There's like a, a secondary thing that happens weeks yeah. later. Like it all it all works. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just sounds like a bit woo-woo to a lot of people I think yeah. and but the real power is you know and you've been to AMC and we speak about it all the time Chris is you know when those thoughts are the unhelpful thoughts when they're the the, the thoughts that you don't like when when these things come up and you've usually got no governance over them mm-hmm. you know it's almost like when you notice that thought it's like waking up for a, from a dream you don't mm. you don't wake up and go oh, bloody hell what was that dream like I need to I need to keep thinking about that dream and stay attached to it. Yeah. You know, just like these thoughts, you don't need to stay attached to them. You know, it's there's an element of of that ability to 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 just, you know, keep that middle way, you know, that that, that poem Rudyard Kipling if just to flip in I think that relates to your thoughts as well, you know, that all men down in you, you can doubt yourself, you know, you can be lied about, you can be spoken about behind your back, but you just gotta know what you're doing is the right thing and have an element of mindfulness. In, in ensuring that you stay on that middle path through all that that rubbish yeah um though a lot of the time as men as human beings 
we can have we can have that yeah. that that stuff that pops up for us. Everybody has triggers, don't they? You know, things that give you an automatic physical reaction. So I kind of hard to think of anything off the, the Hips top of your head. For you, would it be? <laughs> well, that's that's yeah. more that, that's more kind of instant dislike, which I don't think of as kind of um I know it is very bad different. emotional yeah, trend. Yeah. I think it's quite healthy for me that. Yeah. Um but just certain repetitive things that happen. So, for example, there'll be people who, if my phone goes and it's a, you know to do with work, a certain person rings me, I'll think, oh, there must be a problem here, mm. you know, mm. um, because of who it is and because that person would only get in touch with you if you'd written something that was there was an issue with or whatever else. So you get this automatic like physical feeling, and, and I've never really kind of clocked this before until I started listening to some of the, the mindfulness stuff. And then... You have the conversation and it's nothing to do with that and it's nothing problematic at all and it all just kind of disappears <laughs> and it's it is that sort of irrational side mm. of you you've created you, it solely yeah, in your I own i think the phrase they use is fear rather than fact yeah. you know and mm. it's very easy to be theoretical about this because everybody's mind's really complex and so on yeah. and it's not like I and mean, i've only been doing this for probably four or five weeks now maybe a little bit longer so I don't expect to suddenly be massively present with my kids overnight, but I do think that if I do it consistently yeah. and keep doing yeah, it, that yeah. it will work and work and work and I'll get better and better and better at that. Um, but you were asking about why I got into AMC and also you know, Stevie's mentality stuff. And part of the reason is because, I mean, I've read a lot of the articles on mentality stuff um, site, particularly about Stevie's concussion. And I just think that if you're having problems yourself with concussion or even dementia or um, Alzheimer's, you know, which uh, motor neuron disease, these things which come from brain impact or, or can come from that, mm. or people think that, that they do, it's it's good for you to be able to read this and it's good for you to be able to see people who are, I guess, made vulnerable by it, being happy to say, look, this is my experience and this is how it is. And if you want to read about it and hear about it, then, then you can. And I absolutely love football, but I also know that, a lot of what goes on about around football is not the real world. And I couldn't mm. help feeling that when, or noticing that when I was on the walk, the, the square ball walk, for about two or three hours, I mean, they all joke that there were times on that walk where I stuck my headphones in and they all say it's because you were sick of talking about Leeds, but it was actually because I was trying to um, distract myself to get through the next two or three hours when you <laughs> felt like you were going to hit the wall and die. Um, but to begin with, everybody's kind of asking you about Leeds United stuff. But then about a day and a half into the walk, it's the last two and a half days of it, you're just talking about stuff. You know, mm. you're just talking about life. And I was speaking to a guy called Adam who'd had a tumour removed, I think. You'll forgive me for getting this wrong, but I think it was from his stomach. I can't remember. So he'd had serious cancer that he'd had um, operations on. And I think has just been given the all clear from that. And obviously I'd had a brain tumour removed, which wasn't cancerous, but had that removed a year earlier. So chatting on about this stuff. And I, I kind of... I noticed how many people there were kind of seeking help from AMC or mentality mm. or, you know, professional services. And how few of them in the end were, they were all massively into football, but they weren't consumed by it. You know, if, in terms of what was going on in, in their lives, there were much bigger things than that. And I think there does come a point sometimes where you do realise that sport and football isn't all that real. And I think as you get older, particularly, and you try to grow up a little bit, you kind of feel like you do need to involve yourself in the real world a bit more. Just a quick one, guys. We have had two new counsellors join 
team here at Mentality. If you are at a stage in life where you are struggling to manage your mind and it keeps affecting your happiness, it is time to do something about it. You can finally allow yourself the time to sit down with one of our mentality counsellors who will understand what you are going through. They'll help you understand why you are struggling and they'll give you the tools to get back to being happy and the best that you can be. A lot of the time, we just need to clear up any unwanted thoughts and emotions so that we can show up in life the way that we want to. Mentality counselling is available in Yorkshire, Lancashire and the South East, including London. Sessions can be in person, face-to-face therapy or walking therapy. Alternatively, all counsellors can deliver sessions via Zoom. Go to mentality.co.uk forward slash counselling to start your journey. That's a really kind of powerful point and... I'm conscious of time, Phil, because we've got Jesse Marsh's com- um, press conference coming up. Yeah, we can, so, we can squeeze a lot of 10 minutes out of this, no problem. Yeah. So I think I might move on to some quick fire. We wanted to quick Part fires. of this podcast was to get to know the man behind the myth, that is Phil Hay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Incredibly boring. That's a problem. Yeah. Well, we'll let the There's audience no decide, oh, Phil. I'm, yeah. sure I'm sure that's not true. I don't true. think so, do you? So I've got some quick fire questions, Phil. So just uh, shooting from the hip. What does a day in the life of Phil Hay look like? Um, if I'm working, it tends to be kind of nine to five, but like we were discussing, you know, your phone pretty go, pretty much goes all hours. It's very different now, the athletics, we do kind of two or three longer pieces a week as opposed to the evening post where it was filling two or three pages a day. I mean, that is seriously intense mm. job. It's Graham Smith who does that now and it asks a, an awful, awful lot of you. So, yeah, and then weekends obviously tend to be games. Um, I tend to get to a game two or three hours beforehand. People think that's a bit ridiculous. Although on a Saturday, I like catching the early match on Sky or BT Sport. Do you have like a, a morning school. routine or anything like that or things you think get you set up for the it's day all, well? It's all the kids, isn't it? It's all, oh, it's very, it's all yeah. the stuff you've got to do. So it's kind of, a, I don't have a match day routine as in kind of... Um, Putting your boots on. Yeah, yeah, you, you know. Um, if you and a pint or something. Yeah, like. that, that sort of thing, making sure you've got the right socks on the right feet. Um, it's usually getting the kids to ballet or, or whatever, martial arts, whatever it is that they're, that they're doing. So it's, I think it's largely what you'd expect, but through the week you just have to, it's managing the stories as they go, you know, having your articles planned, speaking to people you need to need to speak to. It's, it's a really, really good job it is. Cool. And what, what does happiness look like for Phil Hay? Like if you're looking about... I, I, it's often you hear stories about people on their deathbed looking back in their lives. Oh, I wish I spent more doing this. I wish I spent. More. What does it look like for you? Is it you know? I love. It doesn't need to be abroad, but I love getting away. As soon as you get out of the house and go, we um we had an overnight at the Black Swan in Olstead on Sunday night, and that's like half an hour up the road from where we live in York. But as soon as you get out of the house, you can't get consumed by anything that needs to be done. Even when you take a week off. Um, is your house really messy, Phil? That's what it sounds like, the subtext. <laughs> it's, it's partly really messy because we just cannot finish the dining room. If there's anyone out there who can do brick slips for us, give me a shout. Because um, it's so... De- we've got plumbing that needs done, we need other stuff. Um, it is... I mean, it is fairly fairly chaotic. But you... You know what it's like? You realise that your car could do with an MOT. You realise that there's this and that that could do... The never-ending to-do list. Yeah. That's it, And it yeah. is never-ending, accepting that. Is, yeah. You get yourself away and... You, it. You do, you, you switch off more and You're present probably yeah. when you're doing stuff I mean, like one, that. One of the weird things that I really like is garden buds. And I know that sounds incredibly sad and makes me sound like I should be sort of 70 or 80. But I absolutely love seeing them in the garden. And I think like that sort of thing just makes you switch off from 
everything else that's that's gone. And I quite often go up to Fountains Abbey. There's a peregrine falcon up there at the moment that you can see if you look hard enough. Wow. So it's um, that, and that sort of thing just totally totally distracts you. I like that. It's not very rock and roll, like. We'll, get, it, but, we'll uh, get there, mate. We'll, podcast number two, we'll have it up there. I know, I was down, I was down with James Brown, the ex-loaded editor, doing a Q&A with him about his new book on Wednesday at the Outlaws Yacht Club on Wednesday. And that was all about cocaine use and drinking and everything else. It wasn't a lot of, <laughs> wasn't a lot of garden buds and that. different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Two-week tour of Scotland. What, what's your itinerary? You're recommending it to someone. So Steve's going up to Scotland next week. Where, where are you telling him to go? So definitely go to Edinburgh. And yes. drop in and see hearts, without a doubt. Um, head up to Persia, go to places like Pitlochry, Dunkeld, yeah. Aviemore, up that stretch. I used to have grandparents who lived in a little village called Bankfoot up there, and it's just the nicest part. The Hermitage, have you been to the Hermitage? Yeah. It's beautiful um, walk around there. Oh, I should know. Actually, we used to go there all the time. I can't remember what his name was. Oh, um, the Ossian's, Is it Ossian's, Ossian's Cave? Cave? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. And then if you can get a little bit of time on the north coast, you get beautiful views out from um, from there and some of the islands on the west coast like Tyree and so on are absolutely yeah. oh, so, so the islands Sky and Harris are the ones you hear about a lot yeah. but I can imagine there's some hidden gems they're a bit more well. remote yeah. um, and some of the beaches on them are really idyllic the water is not idyllic the water yeah. it looks it but I love cold freezing. water though that's um, perfect mix of it ah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah I mean? cold water swimmer aren't you you'll get yeah. that up there yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> as long as it's hot on the outside and you can warm up you know you don't want both like, but cold water's class I went to Arisag Oh, yeah. uh, the other yeah. year and Dunkeld I actually spent some Dunkeld. time in Dunkeld it's a beautiful, beautiful place it is it's absolutely um, yeah. be- one of the most beautiful places I've been I know it. and it's on our doorstep yeah it? yeah Two it's, hours, two and a half hours, really. Right, relatively on a doorstep. We were saying yeah, earlier, it's, it's further than you think. Even yeah, yeah. You Once you hit Edinburgh, you're just about there. Yeah. 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 And as a rule, just swear off Glasgow and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of my questions is actually going to be Celtic Rangers. Would you take them out the SPL if you're in charge? Oh, um, I think you might as well, really. Um, put them like Cardiff Swansea, put them in the English but, system. and Yeah, I mean, you'd obviously lose a lot of the focus that's on Scottish football, but it's so uncompetitive. From the point of view of other clubs in there, I, I hardly see the harm, really. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Actually, what does the future look like for Phil Hay? Are you? Is there any other aspirations you have to, or do you think right? This is a really good point. Leeds United, the Premiership, like that, the Athletic, who are a great organisation. Is you kind of? Yeah, I'm not minded to do to do anything else. Really, I always kind of like the idea of maybe lecturing mm. journalism students at some point, um, but I feel a bit young for that at the moment. You know, I feel like. It, 42, I should still be, I should still be backing myself as having a bit of lead in my pencil. (laughs) (laughs) This is a question a mate sent me. Do you ever look out for heart scores when Leeds are playing? Yes. The thing is, it's easy these days because you can basically have multiple websites on and and it keeps ticking over. But half the time that doesn't apply because they don't play at the same time. A lot of three o'clock games in Scotland, although less so this season because hearts are in Europe, but generally... Hearts tend to play Saturday afternoon, whereas Leeds are just all over the place. If you were to write a non-football book, what would it be about? Oh, so when you went to journalism, was it like straight journalism? Or did you think I always want to go into yeah, sports? Yeah, no, but- at Sheffield we did council reporting and court reporting and everything else. There was sports journalism mixed in there, but it wasn't a course like you have at Leeds Trinity, for example, which is pure um, sports journalism. I once went to interview the boxer Paul Ingle, and actually this book's already been done, I forget who by, but this kind of story of his career, he was obviously really badly injured in a fight in Sheffield. And I went, I didn't go to the fight, but I went to the weigh-in beforehand, and it was the the same bill as Joe Calzaghe was fighting Richie Woodall down there. 
And the guy who Ingo was fine, whose again name escapes me, just looked absolutely tough as teak on the night. He just looked like, to coin a phrase from a book I once read, it looked like you couldn't have you couldn't have peeled a, a bit of fat off him with a pair of tweezers. Just looked absolutely absolutely <laughs> rock solid. And in the end, you know that fight was appallingly bad for Ingo. And I went to meet him to do a piece with him shortly after I joined the Evening Post. And there was a there was a very very good story to be told there. I've never read that book about him, but I suspect mm. it's it's really really good. Away from sport completely. I'd have to have a think about that. Birds? I don't know. Garden birds? Yeah, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Garden birds. Maybe that should be fictional. Yeah. I Some like other mystery involving robins. Yeah. Favourite film? <laughs> a few options here, but I love um, From Dust Till Dawn. It's a classic. It's just lunacy from start. Yeah. I've not seen it. Oh, incredibly watchable. Changes genres and stuff within it. If yeah. You know. Yeah, it's, it's a weird film from a writing perspective as well. It breaks some rules, but for the right reason. Is like, it as yeah. weird as Fear and Love in Las Vegas? In a different way. It's very it? different. Yeah. Um, but it's just, yeah. yeah I, re- I read that. I've been reading that book and I'm like flipping... I just can't comprehend how crazy it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's the opposite of the life that I've lived. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, what is going on here? When I- speaking of morning routines and stuff, there's a thing on it. Is it Hunter S. Thompson? Is that yeah. Like, yeah. There's a there's a thing. It's a Joe Rogan excerpt about they go through his morning routine and it, is, <laughs> it would wipe three, the three of us out dead. In an hour. He does before he starts writing. It's insane. So- Same question, TV show, favourite one of all time or? Oh... We've always been big into 24. Oh, Old School yeah. 24 was the because best. It yeah. was kind of the first box set. that we. And don't get me wrong, there have been series since then that have been produced in a better way and have been probably better in the grand mm. scheme. But it's the old classics that stick with. Yeah, I remember yeah. watching that as a kid. And then it kind of dawned at one point and go, if you lived in that world, you'd be dreading five to the, the hour because all the dramatic stuff uh, seemed to happen on the hour, didn't absolutely. it? Yeah. yeah. Nuclear bomb always went off at like 11 o'clock on the dot or yeah <laughs> they should have done a counter series of all the people who were just in bed and had no idea that any of it was going on in the background but no they, they were great that's us now innit yeah <laughs> stuff going on we'd have no yeah, idea yeah it's true about. isn't it it's like we're living in 24 favourite book and hero growing up are the final two and then we'll, we'll wrap it up there so well my hero is a footballer a guy called um, John Cahoon who was a winger for Hearts who very few people will no, well, I don't, I don't imagine his agent these days, but not that many people will know of him. But he was, he was sex on legs as a player. Like he was so good in in the context of watching Hearts. Yeah, you know, yeah, being better players. Favorite book? Wow, I loved fiction wise. I loved a book called Fatherland by Robert Harris, which is quite a mainstream oh, yes. pick actually. Yeah. But the thing that I thought was really clever about it was that he'd he'd written it in I think the 60s 50s or the 60s and the premise being that Germany had won the war it was a counterfactual one wasn't yeah. it yeah yeah um, so on that basis even in the 60s or whenever it was nobody had any idea about the holocaust and it's all about the way in which somebody in Germany eventually finds out about this and the German hierarchy have tried to bump off loads of different generals and um, army figures who would have known about it. And eventually this guy finds out, finds loads of do- uh, documentation about it and tries to smuggle it out of the country. Really clever. But I love reading. Reading's like the Rubik's Cube. You can just kind of drift, yeah. drift yeah. away. Um, just very quickly on Hearts, actually, I just remembered now. I saw a player at the Edinburgh Fringe Fest a few weeks ago. That was about the Hearts team in 1915, I think, or oh, 14. Uh, yeah. 
it was beautiful. It was at the Hart Stadium. It was all... Uh, there's a, there's it, a statue there. Yeah, there, there was... Well, a... We finished there in the garden, I think, oh, where, where oh, the okay. memorial players are. And it was so beautifully done. And it was about the team that should have won. And then they went into the First World War and they didn't all come back. And Yeah, it was called McRae's Battalion. And there were, there were actually players from other clubs who signed up for it as well. But Hearts were really heavily represented. Yeah. And yeah, that. Yeah. So yeah, it was a good squad, a very, very good squad lost. So I'm told, you know, yeah. obviously you only read about them. But yeah, it's a fascinating story that. Um, Phil, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Uh, like I said to Steve before, we've had some really good uh, guests on the podcast. And when I told my mates Phil Hay was coming on, they're all like, it's <laughs> like we had Barack Obama on or something. They're all like, Phil <laughs> Hay. Is some you can tell of, them in yeah. real life, it's a massive disappointment. <laughs> Not at all, Phil. It's been a pleasure, mate. <laughs> mate, it's been, it's, been, it's been class. And I just think, I think we could have the Lord more. Yeah, there's so much more. We'll have you on again. You know I'm going to say we'll yeah, do it again yeah. sometime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, there's so much more we could touch on. And yeah, sorry, Steve. Yeah, I think we could roll into, you know, we 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 mentioned it, Phil, about maybe rolling into some more Leeds United chats, you know, yeah. getting getting more perspectives and, and understanding the reality of both sides of it, yeah. fans, players, what it means, what we're all going for, what we're striving for within it also. You know, you're the, the main man to come to first, mate. Let's do it. You know, let's let's, let's flip in, do it. I've 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 enjoyed it. Yeah, class cl- class conversation. Talk and I think that. someone, Phil, who, you know, just from opening yourself up to this mentality, AMC, just and speaking directly to the people who need it most. It's it's incredible, mate. It's incredible, and we, we, we just thank you for joining us on this yeah. on this podcast. You're welcome. And doing welcome. the work that you it's are doing, great. legend. Cool.